0: Hello, my name is Zoltán Chigesh, and this is Zoltán's podcast on coaching. In this series, I'm talking with internationally renowned coaching scientists and coaches. We explore their personal and professional insights on the science of coaching and on the helping professions. Are you interested in how they got close to this profession? Are you curious about the new frontiers they are exploring right now? Join me and listen to the conversation. Inspiration and some fun is ahead.
1: Uh, really nice to be here. I really enjoy the connection, right? We've had many laughs already in the few brief moments that we've that we've met. Uh, and it feels very human to human. And so I guess every dialogue is uh, being a guest on each other's podcast in a way, right? I think whenever two people are in actual dialogue, like in a conversation where you exchange ideas, um, it's not an interview, right? Uh, and then, well, yeah, I, I like that metaphor. I think it's rich.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much. Like, like always being the guest, Mm -hmm. you know, what, what resonates me immediately is that I I just finished reading a book around anxiety, I won't be able to quote the title, it was about hacking your anxious brain or something like that. And there was a, there was a quote that I really loved in it or an analogy. And it said that you can imagine anxiety or, or anxious people, as if they are not accepting their, their roles in the moment. For example you know um, someone who is over con- trying to over control his his flight by taking a look at the weather or, or criticizing the style of the pilot or whatever they are just not accepting their role as a passenger mm. so that, that's what came to my mind I in, in being a guest in certain roles and and accepting the boundaries or the expectations of our roles I think yeah it seems we are always we are almost having a topic here. Right, right at the beginning.
1: I think that already opens a bunch of existential doors for me, which is, you know, my my dominant theoretical and philosophical lens on coaching. Uh, yeah, and, and before they...
0: we go there, so ah.
1: let let me stop you sure. just for a second. So, of course, because
0: I would be just curious on how did you get into this field. So, how does someone? How did you end up in the domain of existential psychology? Because it seems like, you know, as a from a naive perspective. It seems like the the thing for the old people. Excuse me. I, I, I oh, know I all the asterisks, <laughs> I know that this was judgmental and I said it provocatively <laughs> directly and I didn't mean to hurt or Zother. <laughs> Look I mean, uh,
1: people usually don't start there.
0: So that, that's yeah. my curiosity. That how how did you end up
1: in yeah. this field? Yeah. I hope I'll stay in the field for a little while, <laughs> but you know, existentialists <laughs> love thinking about time and time has a, um, a, sp- a special place, uh, in our hearts and in our thinking. So, uh, I recently turned 40. So, um, hearing that, you know, I still appear young, I still feel young, but whenever we have a round birthday, it does bring up questions around identity and about who we are and where we came from and where we want to go. So, uh, it's nice. I do still feel young, so it's nice that it's uh, that it appears uh, so as well. How did I find my way into this? Well, how do I start answering that question? Um, I think everybody is already an existentialist in many ways. Uh, what I what I hear one of the things I hear most in when I when I train existential coaches is, oh, I've I think I've already been an existential coach, and I just didn't really have the language for it. So um these are human issues. These are this is a human philosophy. This is a philosophy about existence, about what it means to be alive in the world with other people. And I think anybody who reflects on their human condition, on what it means to be alive, on what is this, where is it going? What are we doing here? You know, big questions, who am I? Um I, I like to ask these questions. I feel I've kind of felt drawn to these questions for, for a very long time. Um, so I guess once I, once I found the um, the terminology for it um, was at a time when I had studied positive psychology, I uh, did a master's in positive psychology. Uh, I I got in touch with coaching. I, I had, I had an interest in becoming a psychotherapist or a counselor. Um, because I liked the depth of the conversation and I studied psychology and then I studied positive psychology. So through positive psychology, I found that coaching exists and I immediately was so attracted to it because at the time, positive psychology is the study of what's right with people, right? And strength and resources and positive emotions and hope and love and everything that could go well. Um, And so I felt I needed more than that. The the parallels to coaching were immediate, right? The, what positive psychologists study, coaches try to create for their clients or with their clients. And Absolutely. I wanted to go a lot deeper than that. When I studied positive psychology, I found coaching. I really connected with coaching. I thought like, I have the freedom here to do what I want. And, you know, it's a bit less restricted and regulated. And it felt, Felt very exciting, but then I, I felt a lot of positive psychologists were maybe a bit too positive. And while there's immense value in looking at what's right with people, I needed an approach to coaching that would appreciate and acknowledge and work with. Life is often shit, you know. It's difficult. It's hard. It's challenging. There's lots of anxiety, right? There's uh, there's conflict, dilemma, paradox. It's difficult just to be alive. It's it's tough, you know. There's, there's a lot of challenges and that kind of anxiety, it doesn't go away, that existential one. Um, so we need to live with that. So I, I found my way, it, it was an old mentor of mine um, who said, you should have a look at that course because I was looking for something that would integrate coaching and therapy in a meaningful way. That would be, I would be able to work across the range of the human experience and not just across a very limited part of that range. And that's how I found the existential framework. And it's now, it's my home because <laughs> I was able to integrate all of these exciting bits from other parts of psychology and philosophy into a framework that people innately understand once you translate it from the complex philosophy into everyday life experiences.
0: Oh, thank you. And you, can, you know, Even in that, there were a number of things which I can agree with. So I, I love the depth. And um, I could I can share your concern about certain people being too positive. and I, I've, I've immediately found a few, you know tricky areas where I would what I would like to explore with you, because you know one, one of the things you said is that 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 positive psychology, what you've learned about it was not as deep as you wanted to go. That's that's what I understood, and that you that you love the existential framework for enabling you to go wherever you want. And whenever whenever I hear that, I, I immediately have the question of okay, but where are the boundaries of the profession? So what? So on, on one hand, how do you define yourself? So are you on the coaching side? Are you on the psychologist side? Are you are you a coaching psychologist, or and how do you present yourself towards your clients? Because I think that's that's an issue that most of us, or a lot of us, oh, yeah. are facing these days. And I think that's a, a key issue for a profession on how to, I mean, to both or all of these helping professions on how to relate to each other. So yeah. what, what's your position on
1: that? Yeah, where would you like to start? There's a few questions on the table.
0: Well, one of my old mentors told me that uh, sometimes... You just it's okay to spit out lots of questions and your oh, yeah. clients will just find the most appropriate one for them to answer. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, you know, let me... But I would be, so you know, my focus would be, I, I would be interested in your opinion on, on how do you present yourself? So what you said that the existential framework is your home now, how do you like to present yourself towards your clients? So what is your, you know, what, what is your pickup line? for
1: your clients yeah yeah Yeah, let's let's talk into that um thank you for the curiosity by the way Uh, i i knew i was excited about talking to you because you you dig and you throw a bunch of questions on the table i sometimes do the same and also sometimes do the same in the coaching room and part of me is like "Mm, bad coach stack questions and then another one is like well just you know throw some curiosity out there see what the see what people do with it so i i think Let's let's talk about how I present myself and then we uh, inevitably will get to the, to the boundary of how far, how far can coaches go, right? Because okay. it's a, it's a question that I, that often appears in supervision. And also, given that, you know, existential coaching, half of our literature was around existential psychotherapy, because at the time that I studied this, there wasn't really much written about existential coaching. So given that the, the depth of the questions, it's quite profound. So these are these are important questions that can be difficult to draw the line between coaching and therapy. Yeah. So- and if I can add, a per- excuse me,
0: <laughs> I just need to add a personal parallel that that I have a, a similar experience right now because now I'm I'm a psychologist by background as well and now I'm I'm in a postgraduate course for becoming a counselling psychologist because I just like to have the papers to do whatever I need to do and some of my clients want to go deeper. And what I'm experiencing as a counseling psychologist is that a, a number of our tutors are coming from the clinical field yeah. and and they are teaching us clinical concepts. And I'm like, okay, hey guys, I came here as a coach to learn a bit more and be more of a counselor, but now you are giving me the clinical level knowledge. So, how should I draw my boundaries? That's why I'm interested in what you oh, are yeah. doing. So, oh, yeah. I may be oh. learning a few extra
2: subjects. No,
1: likewise. Uh, similarly, in during my training to be an existential coach, I did an MA in existential coaching at the the New School of Counseling and Psychotherapy uh, in London uh, under Emmy van Dersen, Monica Hanaway, we had so many different trainers on the course. And I don't think there was any of them that weren't therapists first. And the people who wrote the books, they're all therapists and then they've become coaches or they're still both and they're right about it. There's a new generation with me, uh, Danny van Derzen, uh, I think Anne Lagerstrom as well. There's a few, few of us now uh, who are not coming straight from therapy. The question when you have a therapeutic uh, training, the question of how far can you go is a less important one because you do have the safety of the training and you can go to places that are therapeutic, maybe with some appropriate recontracting but people with therapy backgrounds don't have to be so worried about is this now therapy because if it was and i'm not properly trained it could become risky it could become unethical it could become you know something where you shouldn't be opening so how far can we go to me it always comes down to how far am i willing and able to go mm-hmm. and that's a that's a continuous question i think every coach need to ask themselves and there is no one answer I know that I can perhaps hold more, more space at depth than perhaps a performance trained coach. Um, yeah. The level of training experience that I've got allows me to be comfortable at a place of depth. Um, I think it depends a lot on how resourced your clients are to engage with this. Because what I, I ask a lot of coaches on, on uh, my podcast uh, and as well as on Anima's podcasts, uh, Coaching Uncaged, which I, I get to host, ask a lot of people uh, with strong background in therapy, how do you see the difference? And what I hear more and more is, it's not so much about the approach. It's not so much about the technique or the way that you hold space or the content steps that you're working with, the methodology. It's more about who the client is so i asked the constructivist coach for example what, what do you do differently and they say i don't do anything differently but the people who show up they're different people right they're all they're not in a deep hole figuring out how to get out they're they're not deeply hurt trying to uh, heal something uh, i talked to simon Weston yesterday he talks about the wounded self and the celebrated self and that therapists tend to work with the wounded self although not exclusively Whereas coaches more often work with a celebrated self. You can be a ser- therapist working with a celebrated self, you know, you can be a therapist and have a deep conversation with someone who's very, very high functioning. You know, so at this point, I don't think there's a big difference between existential coaching and existential therapy. Emmy van Dersen recently told me that there's a it was great to see her because um, she embodied it. At some point she got into therapist mode and she just kind of slightly leaned back. And her voice got softer, and her whole body got softer, and there was a different quality of how she held space. And when you're coaching, I think you're more leaning in. You more, you know, there's there's an, a different kind of energy to it. Um, so that's I've always found that super interesting because that line is just so blurry.
0: Thank you for raising this the, the power of the client or the presence of the client because I I think we rarely talk a lot, we rarely talk enough about the clients, although we are all in the helping industry, but whenever we are curious about our profession, curious about coaching or therapy or whatever, I think the literature I'm reading, or most of it I've read, was more interested in in the professionals themselves, so coaches, therapists, whatever, Mm. and the client side just being the object of of the stuff we are doing. But Um, that's
1: relational, how could it... How could it, you know, how could it not matter?
0: Yeah. So, and I'm not saying that I haven't read relational stuff, but I, I do sense that there is a bigger focus on, on on us. And I really love when the other part, the client side is really presented. And I've never really heard about this definition or this cut point between coaching and mm. therapy, which would be using the client yeah. as the, you know, defining aspect of the relationship
1: there's another there's another element that of time um i asked uh there's a a mexican colleague a mexican existential coach and existential therapist uh, yaki martinez a great Mm -hmm. guy Uh, i found out that we wrote a book with the exact same title but his was in spanish and I didn't Google mine before before I published my book, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, his his was out a year earlier, so I, I was a bit <laughs> I was a bit sad about that. But he's amazing. So I went to see him. My wife is Mexican. Next, like next time I went to Mexico, I said, "Hey, you know, um, we should meet." Uh, so he kindly invited me. I, I did a podcast with him. I asked him, "Where's the line between you know? At what point is it therapy?" And his answer was so incredibly simple. He said. If it's six sessions, it's coaching. If it's any more, it's therapy.
0: Okay, oh. then I was then I was told to do therapy all the time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can see because he's working phenomenologically, right? So and it's difficult to see where the difference is then when you work in this kind of way, really bracketing what you think you know, really tuning into the client's experience um and allowing new meanings to emerge from that kind of exploration i can see why he would make that kind of simple line Uh, i'm not sure if six is maybe the great number there but like i I get the idea that if it's a more short-term intervention then it would be coaching and if it's longer term you you go into more depth there's certain things that are so complex that it really takes some time to unpick it um and that he would then call it therapy I mean, it's a as good a line as any,
0: I guess. Yes, and and I just love this last line of yours that, that we can have a number of different lines, mm-hmm. and um, and as long as we don't have one single line in which we all agree, we will always have a certain you know, tidiness around the boundaries of these helping professions, and uh, and I think that is a good thing. On one, on so it could be a challenging thing on one hand from legal, ethical, whatever perspectives. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think it's a good thing to have these gray area because it could help for clients to to cross that boundary without extra level of anxiety. Yeah. As, they, as it may be a, a, it may be helping helpful for them to say that okay, I'm just getting to a kind of a deeper okay. coaching or another type of helping or relationship. Because sometimes but that's my impression, sometimes going to therapy may still be stigmatized, maybe a stigmatizing, you know, relationship for certain people. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that this is shrinking, or I mean the phenomenon is not as big as it used to be, but it it is still challenging from a social perspective for certain people.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wish it was not, because it really is an exploration of self. And uh, if the stigma wasn't there, I think a lot of more people would know themselves a lot better. Um, and that's why I really, I, I, for a while, I was really um, concerned about coaches entering deep trauma without the therapy training, because I felt mm-hmm. mm, you can, with best intentions, really do some damage when you do deep psychological work, uh, because your unconscious dynamics, they do show up. And if you're not trained to be aware of that, uh, you're in regular supervision, you've done your own work. So you see how you bring yourself into these relationships. Uh, your past trauma is going to show up. Your relationship with your parents is going to show up your relationship with other people. They're always going to find their way into the room. Um, and that, that can be tricky, but I've kind of changed a little bit on that because, uh, I think under the guise of coaching, clients can do work that otherwise maybe they would have never done right? So it's a good thing if somebody opens up some of those doors. So I think as long as I mean, everybody's got different lines, that's right. And when we talk phenomenologically, there's an experience of knowing I I cannot tell you where the line between my coaching is and when therapy begins. But I can tell you what the experience is, when I start feeling that I'm out of my depth, and that it might be better for this client to work with someone else. And that's a when I, when I feel that way, and I often talk about that with clients in the beginning, especially when it's a client where I feel this could this could go into therapeutic realms very quickly, and I might not be the right person for them anymore. Um, I say, hey, at some point, I might get that feeling. And at that point, my body is telling me that, you know, maybe it's better for you if you work with someone else, you know, it's not, it's not for me, it's really for you to get the best possible service. And so we contract that there is a boundary, even though we don't quite know where exactly that is.
0: And it is a good thing that you have the the training to go a bit for, to go further than classical coaching, whatever. How who, doesn't matter how we define what classical coaching is. Yeah. And you know, my 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 concern for our coaching profession, for so for the profession of coaching, is that that there may be colleagues who get clients who would like to do this deeper work, but the coaches may not have the proper training for doing that. And whenever their gut feelings, those coaches' gut feelings may be still saying that, okay, this is a, a nice thing to have. They may be on, on territories where they shouldn't be. And perhaps their gut feelings may not be giving them the proper signals. Yeah, because to feelings. be able to read your feelings, you need to have your own, you know, not to say it properly that your own shit sorted out because <laughs> yeah. sometimes your gut feeling may just be the presence of a parallel process with your client mm-hmm. or something entirely different than just the gentle reminder of your competency boundaries. So,
1: uh, yeah, I, I celebrate that so much. Thank you for putting it so beautifully because uh, I, I once, I remember the moment when I have learned that common sense is not actually that common. Um and intuitions everybody has their own intuitions and i i i I remember it bothered me when i met a coach who said i'm an intuitive coach never read a book on coaching never done any training they just do work and they do it intuitively and they do what feels intuitively right and i i knew at the time there's something about that that is that is that is um know. it's not that it's not okay it's not that it's necessarily dangerous but there was something that bothered me about it and uh over the years i learned why because we have these parallel we have these um, intuitions based on something that comes from our unconscious and if we're not paying attention to that then it'll just take us away and it'll do something and we won't notice that it's happening um and so we can uh unconsciously really guide someone or direct someone towards a certain outcome or direction or take control or get caught up in power dynamics and be completely oblivious to it. Uh, And so that's, that's tricky.
0: I, I absolutely agree. And I just have to add in brackets that one of my favorite concepts is, is games from the Bernian approach, so from transactional Analysis, games we play and, that they those are unconscious stuff. So I may be even inviting you to be a part of my play yeah. me as a coach. and if I'm unlucky or if we are both unlucky, you may you can find an ideal role to be played in my drama, or we can just co-create a new drama together, which should be fantastic <laughs> with all the irony I can say. so i I absolutely agree. And you know, when, as we talk about all this, I just have in my mind the, the first question I asked, but you haven't answered it, but you've answered so that, many others. There
1: that, that was a is good that, link,
0: actually. Absolutely. That, that, so how do you present yourself or how do you define yeah. yourself for clients yeah. with all these things in the background?
1: Yeah. A little while ago, you said that this is relational, right? That um, it doesn't have to be. Coaching can be a transactional process. You know, we can guide someone through the grow model or practice or Oscar or whatever other uh, process model and make progress. And our relationship dynamics don't actually matter that much. I think coaching is deeply relational, but that's my coaching, right? So when I present myself, that question can also only be answered in relation. Um, one question I love to ask, uh, in my own podcast, uh, is, um, well, you find yourself at a dinner party. How do you introduce yourself? You know? And so I've asked it a bunch of times until somebody said, well, really depends on who is at the party. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, of course it does. I mean, who am I talking to? Uh, what kind of uh, uh, appearance do they make? What do I already know about them? Right. So if I don't know anything about someone, I might just say I'm an existential coach because it very rarely fails to start a conversation, right? And that really is what coaches want. If we are sharing that, um, why do we share that? Do we share that because we want a client? Do we share that because we want to help people? Do we share that because we want to make a good impression? Do we share that just as an exchange? Um, A very early mentor of mine, very first person that I explored to maybe become a therapist with, he's told me that, piece of advice, if you do become a therapist, you find yourself at a dinner party and they ask you, hey, what do you do? Do yourself a favor and lie. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, sure. he just wanted to have a nice evening and not f- have other people feel on the back foot and on defense and think that he's going to be psychoanalyzing them. Um, yes. mm-hmm. I, I'm quite open. I'm quite transparent. When I say I'm an existential coach, usually people say, oh, that, what's that? Right? And then... I can talk about something that I'm passionate about, which is the human condition and the work and, you know, the intimate relationships and the privilege of being part of people's journeys and asking big questions, you know, just by that, I'm opening so many doors that somebody who talks to me can take and have an interesting conversation. That's likely going to do something in some way, raise some interesting questions, have an interesting conversation, have a good experience maybe ask themselves some new questions, open some philosophical doors. I always enjoyed making people think. And now I say inviting people to think or helping people think. but don't necessarily want to make them think. I used to make people think, but it's, we can't. Um, but it opens up a space, right? So when I say existential coach, that's helpful because, you know, I can I can do that in, in a bunch of different ways.
0: And what's, what's your, so what is your experience? Does your introduction at a dinner party or on your web page does it filter your clients as well So do you do you find more people coming to you who already have existential questions?
1: Yeah so that there's a mix right depends on where your clients come from. I, I don't have a client system like a, a system in place um, where I know this is how it works this is how I generate leads. I was always a bit anti these processes. Changing a little bit now as we're scaling the coaching lab and I kind of have to figure out some, some marketing principles and how to reach a broader audience. But like for the longest time, it really didn't matter so much to me. I, I did what I like doing and through that conversations happened and relationships were built. So when I trained coaches, not even existential coaches, but just general, um, there was always a few people who either referred someone or asked to do some work. You know, um, for many, many years, we did a thing called pub psychology. We just, we went to the pub every Tuesday evening and talked about some psychological topics. Uh, was a former professor of mine. And, uh, then there was a community around that. And it was just a nice community where people would just come in and talk about psychology. They were interested. Um, as I started kind of more branding myself as an existential coach and really owning that label, um, as I uh, produced more content and wrote the book. Uh, now I've got a presence, right? So if somebody is googling something along the lines of existential coaching, I'll probably come up. So that allowed people to just kind of go and find me. Um, but really, when you're in a conversation, they don't need to have seen anything online or read anything or have any context for you. If you find yourself in a conversation and you have an interesting conversation. I'm naturally quite big picture. I'm going to ask bigger questions. I'm going to zoom out. I'm going to explore. I'm curious and dig a little, you know, I I like that. It's not just coach Yannick. It's also who Yannick is. So when I find myself talking to people at an event or at a party or at some sort of social gathering, then uh, there might be doors open that somebody really would like to explore further. So occasionally I find myself saying something along the lines of like, you know, hey, have you ever considered working with someone on this? Because like you seem to, there's, there seem to be a lot of doors open for you. You know, yeah. you know, there's help out there. Uh, and I'm not necessarily even thinking about me being their coach. I'm thinking about you would really benefit from coaching, you know, yeah. and then they might want to know more. And given that they already have a relationship and you already presented yourself as somebody who's credible and who they can trust or who they maybe like, then it's easy to say, well, well Can we work together? Yeah. Has it
0: ever failed? I mean, you introducing yourself, existential coach, big questions, big whatever, has it ever yielded a negative result? I mean, a client shutting down and saying that, no, thank you. No, I'm not interested in the depth of my life. I'd just like to, you know, (laughs) earn two times as much as I'm doing right now. And I would just need to get rid of the stupid ass boss I'm having and I need, you know, two more points on my whatever, whatever <laughs> yeah. skill. So,
1: of course. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that happens. Um, i did done some agency work with a coaching agency from New York that we're working with like smaller tech startups. Um, and I wasn't branded as an existential coach and it was a, a bunch of people. I just wanted to get to the next level of promotion and they would stop thinking very early. I, in my like in my perception you know they're just like mm, I don't know why do you think that is I don't know and then I stop thinking about it and I'm like oh hmm, it's well, very interesting that you stop thinking there you know and sometimes somebody would take the invitation and realize oh yeah no I do stop I, I could I guess I could explore this more and maybe you need to help them how but some people they're really just not that interested and that's that's okay I mean when I was younger <laughs> I was more passionate. About really wanting to open that up for people, but you know, I've come to learn that you can't really if people don't really want to. I mean, you can you can ask all the right questions, but somebody doesn't want to; they're just going to dodge the questions anyway. And if I find myself working harder than my client, that's that's not going to work.
0: Yeah, well, that's not going to work. Do you have any other you know one liners, or do you have a, a a tool or whatever? feel free to say no. What do you do when when you have the curiosity, you see that, okay, those doors are almost open, but your client just says no, either because of fear or, or whatever. So what do you do with the, I don't know?
1: Yeah. So my... I don't
0: think, I think you would it's be saying I don't know, but
1: that was the <laughs> <Yeah, pff, whatever. laughs> <laughs> Um whatever. I think it's... There's, there's two things, right. Uh, that I find quite elegant. Um, it's, it can be one of the most elegant challenges is the challenge that comes from pure curiosity. Mm-hmm. So when you're just like, Oh, that's really interesting that you stopped thinking there, you know, or it's just like, well, here's an observation. It's not like I want you to keep thinking. I want you to think at a deeper level, but just like, I'm not attached to where you're going to be taking this, but I'm, really curious and if, if somebody doesn't appreciate that curiosity curiosity can be really challenging right hearing something like that might be a huge revelation maybe maybe you would maybe that person regarded themselves as a as a very effective thinker and all of a sudden they're faced with the reality of this person's experience of you not thinking very deeply you know that, that's a reality not because it's necessarily the truth But it's that person's experience and you cannot really take that away. So being faced with that, especially if it's delivered in a relationship where you know this person is on your side and this person is friendly towards me, this person is committed to what I'm committed to and trying to help me. And then you hear something that you really didn't want to hear, but it's delivered from this innocent curiosity without an agenda or an intention, you know, other than to help you that's so powerful. And I I think that's just beautiful, right? So in in my, um, I wrote about this recently in my, in my written contract, Uh, I picked up something from a very early coach of mine that I was working with who wrote that um, coaching, I I changed a little bit, but he wrote something along the lines of coaching may be challenging, you know, as we leave familiar shores, any new learning can be just uncomfortable. And the, the coaching journey might be challenging, and at times I might be the voice of such challenge. Rather than I am challenging you, I might be the voice of something challenging for you, you know that you're facing. So you know that coming from curiosity is uh, is maybe not a one liner, but uh, paying attention, paying, following your curiosity, and paying attention to what's happening right in front of you. Right here's my observation. I think it was Eric De Hahn who said or wrote. I think he wrote it somewhere that my job, and I'm paraphrasing a little. I reckon <laughs> my job as a as an executive coach is to hold space and occasionally share an observation. That's really all that that he does. You know, at least that's that's what he said, and I can I can see that uh, having having seen him coach. You know, you share an observation, and observation doesn't mean that it's a piece of advice or a suggestion or that you necessarily want them to go anywhere with that, or that you have an agenda. It's just, I'm noticing something that's happening either in front of me for you, or that's happening between us right now. Uh, And if I'm curious about that, that's, I mean, you can't really go wrong with that because if it's not helpful, they're just going to move on. And if you're not too attached to it because you don't actually have an agenda, then you just go do something else. No? But I think it's worth checking.
0: I absolutely agree. And again, I I like a number of things what you have said, the not having an agenda. I think that's an, um, a thing that we all should be working on throughout our whole careers, but because that's a very hard place to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Or, that, or that may be my... Supervision topic that I can frequently find agendas in my mind, and I have to actively, yeah. you know, kick them outside from the from my own thinking space, just to be there and to be for to be there for my clients. Yeah, it's not and not uh, to have
1: any. It's how do you navigate having them so that they don't influence the how you work with that client, right?
0: Thank you for saying that because I, this is what I really wanted to say out loud because in, in a number of coach trainings either the ones that I've been doing or I've been holding as a tutor, we have this saying that you shouldn't have an agenda. But it's, it's it seems it seems like they it, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> it seems like the Mount Everest, you know, whenever especially new new big coaches, with all due respect, they hear this, they are like okay, well, how will you do that? I just have the agenda of pushing them through grow model or I have an agenda of getting hired through another session or I have an agenda of making money. So these are all agendas. Yeah. And it's, oh my God, it's I'm okay. doing it wrong.
1: I notice I have one. I'm not supposed to. They told me I, I can't have any and then they feel like bad coaches. I see that in supervision all the time.
0: Yes, and immediately just catching them, them their own selves, having something can derail their attention, which eventually leads them to be bad. Worse coaches than they were two minutes ago, mm-hmm. but I think teaching people, teaching coaches, or helping professionals that not having an agenda is not about not having an agenda; it's about navigating your or managing your agendas properly. Mm-hmm. I think this is a, a a teaching that I I'm I don't hear frequently, so I'm so glad that this came up. So, thank you very much for for voicing that. And and uh, now I have another picture in my mind. Uh, not at least a clear one, but let, but let me give a a shot at it. So when you said that curiosity is a, a strong intervention, and I couldn't agree more, and when it is free, when it is given or provided with by by a, by a person who is friendly towards you, who is on your side, as where your words, so this could be a very strong thing, and and I agree. And Here is the thinking. So whenever I pose, whenever I give one of those big questions to my clients, I always wonder whether they are just recalling from their memories of what they've been thinking about themselves around that question previously. Or are they just creating a new piece of themselves in the moment? That, That is always an interesting question for me. Yeah. So whether new pieces of selves or new pieces of things are being created or are they just, you know, brought into the reflector of the coaching space, that has always been interesting for me. Yeah. And um, I don't know why I'm sharing this, but I I, I would love to believe that when you give this above mentioned curiosity with your warm heart and your being on the same side as your client, then the new pieces of identities are being created on the spot and they are not recalled or not just reflected on or not just brought up from the past. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to say that because that's my wish for us.
1: That, that brings up uh, quite a bit for me because uh, bringing yourself into this relationship, right. The um, it's it's risky in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. The uh, stereotypical psychoanalyst or therapist, even would not give any of their personality away you know they would wear plain clothes and not have any personal pictures around and they would not be on social media and they would not show their values and their beliefs and that's important if you work with what's being projected onto you right freud found that clients would project all of these things into him whether he's like strict or warm or like, you know, but he would just work hard to be quite neutral. And I think this neutrality is uh, still by many people to be uh, this holy grail of not having an agenda and almost not being a person so that you can work with what's being projected onto you because what people project onto you when they don't know anything about you is super interesting because it says way more about them than than about you, how they perceive you. Because they read all these things into you, and they come from their own mind, not from who I am. Yep. So that's helpful in coaching. It's very different because most coaches now they are on social media. They need to be in order to create business. They show up in conversations with a lot of character. They want to connect human to human, and there's many forms of therapy also that where the the, the therapist really connects. Irvin Yalom's beautiful writing about showing up human in the therapy space. So, yep. but whenever we do that, we lose the ability or the position of working with those kind of projections uh, as effectively as somebody who who does that so i think whenever we bring ourselves in and have that kind of human to human relationship we might be creating something for better or for worse right because if we believe in someone's potential they can feed of that belief and start believing in that potential themselves it's a very powerful thing to be met with someone who's for example coming from an NLP frame, you know, if with the basic tenant of it, what if one person has done it, anybody can do it. What an amazingly powerful belief. I don't agree with it, but what an amazing belief to be met yeah. with because yeah. that's so attractive. The other um, bit that brought up for me is, are you familiar with the internal family systems? I'm, I'm assuming you, you might yes. be IFS. I mm-hmm. really like IFS as a framework. Um, to work with that there isn't one self. There's multiple selves. There's a whole symphony of selves. And there is a self with a capital S that is you now really trying to tap into. And coaches will probably know that self with a capital S because at that point, coaches tend to just need to lean back and let that client do their work. You know, sometimes we need to work a little bit harder with interventions and questions and processes. Once we tap into that self that is... With all these beautiful C's and competent and creative and compassionate, they just do the work. You just need to let the client do their work. I uh, was on the receiving end of an IFS session, my my first kind of real IFS experience. And I had that experience that you were describing. I thought, wait a second, am I tapping into a part of mine from way back when? Or am I just making this shop shit up right on the spot? You know, Maybe I want this part to exist. So I'm just thinking it into existence. And I couldn't quite tell the difference whether there's, you know, that the process works in a way that it's quite a meditative state. And I was there with my eyes closed and I was imagining or or picturing, tapping into, or was I actually creating something on the spot, you know? And so I could never quite be sure whether there's something really there or whether I'm just making something up now that's supposed to help me. And if it helps... Maybe it doesn't matter. But that really resonated with what you were asking earlier.
0: Mm -hmm. And this is a a long shot parallel, but I, I just love the neuropsychological thought that your brain just receives signals or just works with signals, electromagnetic, whatever, and from a biological perspective, there is no difference between the signals of reality and the signals uh-huh. of your, yeah, of your imagination. Uh-huh. And I'm like, so, so that seems like a kind of a weak evidence, but but it seems like an evidence that we can just think up new identities, new whatever's for us, mm-hmm. because even on a biological level, that, that's what we do. We just. We just use our minds, brains, whatever. And I know I'm not using proper terminologies here, but but I just simply love that picture that mm. I, I can come up with whatever I want to make. Unfortunately, I won't be able to run as quickly as the Olympic gold medalist, because I would love to. I cannot dream that out. But well, you well, can I'm improve, but also. you
1: don't have the kind of anatomy to beat Usain Bolt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> yeah.
0: I I think I'm, I'm almost, this, I, there's a chance that I'm even taller than him because I'm two meters tall, oh, really? very long legs, but uh, my coordination and the, and of course my muscularity is not up to me,
1: So, yeah. Well, that's often a yeah, question, I, uh, right? Yeah. Can we, I mean, there's a much larger question there around, uh, well, determinism and freedom you know do we have the freedom to be whoever we like to be like i'm i'm a late millennial so i think our generation many in our generation have been told that you can be whatever you want to be and i don't think that's true right so there's certain limits self so, limiting belief well exactly that's that's what you know <laughs> what coaches you like for, to tell you for limiting your generation <laughs> i mean like <laughs> yeah we're we're laughing but there's a very serious aspect to it because i i think a lot of coaches get trained from that philosophical perspective that anything is possible and i think that could potentially be quite harmful because when you start listening to some uh, coaching gurus that shall not be named (laughs) then anybody can do anything and you just need to pay the right coach tons of money and then they unlock something in you with their magic and then you can do whatever you want. It's just yeah, but that's I definitely think, not true. Well, there's biological limits. And some biological limits that we thought were limits are not actually limits, but they're either might not be limits in the future, or they are limiting beliefs. And they're they're really just beliefs. But there's certain I mean, it doesn't mean that you like if what I sometimes say to to um students that come to coaching is uh Imagine somebody walks into your coaching office and um, says, I want to, my goal is to win the 100 meter Olympics. And you look at them and they're rolled in in a wheelchair and they have no legs. How do you respond to that? What's going on inside of you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you say, right, let's get to it you know are, are you colluding with someone in their delusion and if you say that's crazy <laughs> are you not like robbing them of their life's purpose Um, if you i'd like to say tell me about that i'm maybe i i'm want to show up congruent and authentic and i say i notice you have no legs talk me yeah. through how that might work you know and i, I even if I believe that they are indeed crazy, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and first really listen. Uh, and maybe they have a plan. And Oscar Pistorius did it for, yes. you know.
0: I, I, I just have him in my mind when you, when you brought up the, the fictionary exactly. thing. Yeah.
1: But even if somebody is coming in with arthritis and HIV positive and they got long COVID and uh, they also have no legs and they want to become a NASA astronaut and they're in 69, celebrating their 70th birthday next year. Just That's not, minutes. it's just, you're not going to go to the moon, man. That's just <laughs> not going to happen. But it doesn't mean that they can't find meaning and purpose in the journey that they're opening without. Yeah.
0: I could get, so I think this is kind of a gold mine where we got to right now, because on one hand, I could just, Start to argue with the with the specific cases, which would lead me to the question of how do you use you know irony or dark humor <laughs> in a coaching session? <laughs> because hey, of how? course you can go to the oh moon, oh like, tell me you know, no like, no you just like, need to say like... more now. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to hurt anyone. So, you, know, you can always go to the moon like 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 or free or food for the others. So
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: <It's>,
2: uh... <laughs> sorry, yeah, that's yeah, interesting thing. part of the
1: mind that just opens. <laughs> <laughs> that's creative okay. ways of going to the moon. yeah, I get that <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's my way of coping with certain frustrations or tensions that I sometimes I, I I find things things humorous that my clients or my peers may not, but. I think I'm usually pretty good in, in hiding the dark side of my humor. So perhaps we will edit this part out. And if you are hearing me <laughs> saying this, then it means that it hasn't been anything else. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think there's a, a big point of connection, right? Uh, I mean, dark humor or anything like that is similarly risky. It can really create a strong bond because somebody just resonated with that and they get it and they laugh and you have a great moment. And you know it builds some, some really strong like bond. It. Or mm-hmm. it really breaks the relationship because they're like, whoa, what a fucking weirdo. <laughs> so I have a I have a sense that you can probably read people to an extent that uh, when to bring that out and not.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I have the illusion that I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> but I can clearly remember one time when I was, so when I didn't get to a coaching pool of, uh, of a medium-sized company, they were asking for introductory videos and I just dropped uh, a mildly humorous thing about, about ears. And then they, I was very quickly making the video and I was just selfieing it and I was like, okay, on this video you can see that I have bigger ears and that's because it's all about listening to you and something like that. And
1: then... <laughs> that's pretty light-hearted think, humor, yeah.
0: And I think it would work and it would just show my you know my, my human touch. And sometimes... I am. I do use humor in my sessions, positive uh, the positive one mostly. And then two weeks later, I got a feedback from the HR guy whom I who I, who I knew personally, and he just told me that that very introduction, Zoli, was was not at the level of professionalism we were expecting. So I was like, I guess I know which part you were referring to, but agreed. So I got it. Since then, I'm, I'm not doing the HR big... guy. <laughs> hmm?
1: Did the HR guy have big ears? No, no, he he, has, he had a normal. <laughs> yeah, well, he does have a point, but ah, uh, do we really need to take it? Like that's why I like coaching because it it tends to be more human.
0: I agree. I I absolutely agree. And there, the, but so let me take another shot at the at the line of thought that you brought in, and what I what I really liked is that you mentioned that there may be biological limitations in and Where do we want to get do we or do I want to get an astronaut? Like let's say at at, at our age, at the age around 40, I think we we don't really have a big chance of becoming NASA astronauts because well, you haven't been a, a fighter jet pilot. Or well, tell me if you have been. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's some things well, you don't so... know about me. <laughs> <laughs> No, not so, that kind of fighter jet. Okay, so,
0: but, but I but I picked up
1: uh, the the
0: word of biological and and uh, what about social or or environmental you know conditions that we may be facing? And I think for me it's an interesting question. As I got my my basic training in my MA, I had a, a number of classes. Even I did a specialization on social psychology. And that, that how you know, how big leaps can you make? Mm. Or how big leaps can you encourage with your clients from a social perspective? Because they, I can agree that certain biological boundaries, they may not be demolished. I think so. We we have, you know, just a handful of Oscar Pistorius in a generation who will win an Olympic gold without legs. Yeah. It is possible that it, it won't really be frequent, but how many people can really, yeah. you know, steps through their social boundaries. I mean, coming from poverty or having no leadership experience and then becoming a global CEO or, or whatever.
2: Yeah,
0: or coming cool. from a minority group and then ending up in a high-class yeah. family, whatever. So I'm yeah. just blurping up whatever that yeah. comes to my and mind. And also so, where
1: does their determination come from? I mean, how did they grow up so that they had this incredible drive to succeed? You know, so and I think many coaches, particularly, focus on these high-profile coaches, lots of visibility. Focus on these incredible success stories, and they're inspirational, but they also create a false sense of what's possible.
0: Yes, not and, possible,
1: and likely not possible, oh, exactly. because, you
0: uh-huh. know. Yeah, and and that's where I would like to get back to your existential background. That that so, what would the your inner existential coach? Tell me about breaking or overcoming social or role related boundaries
1: mm-hmm.
0: complicated question I know but I'm just curious so what what does no, this is good. existential psychology say about these kind of
1: changes yeah so you you referenced my website earlier and what does it say on the website and on the website it doesn't actually say, Uh, existential coach i mean that 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 isn't the address right (laughs) existential coach but really the first words you see is choose life and i've i selected that carefully um nothing to do with train spotting that the the dark reference to that (laughs) maybe maybe some people still know that Uh, but it's really because existentialists emphasize choice and there is a particular perspective on choice that it's it's beautiful to have choice, but also we must choose. So Sartre famously said that we're condemned to be free. Um, Soren Kierkegaard talks about the dizziness of freedom. You know, freedom is hailed as this amazing thing that everybody should be striving for, but you give someone too much freedom and they suffer. You know, there's so much anxiety because every choice I make excludes all of the other choices that I could have made in that moment. Even if I reverse the choice and make a different choice or choose something else, I can never ever go back in time and make that different choice back then. So you have no idea. It's impossible to know how things would have turned out if you made a different choice. So no wonder some people are paralyzed. And if you're lucky, you're just paralyzed over what lunch menu, what to choose from the lunch menu and you despair, you know, but some people despair over choosing a career, choosing a partner, Choosing which degree to study, or where to go to school, or which country to move to—you know, there's big, big life choices that many people find themselves paralyzed over, and mm-hmm. that that not doing anything, well, rather choosing not to do anything, choosing not to choose. you for saying that. Yeah? That's a choice it, as well. It can have detrimental effects and impact on people's lives. So, choosing and choice. Is huge. Goes together with taking responsibility. There's another conversation there, but yeah. uh, coming back to what we've been, where we came from. You can, to what extent can you choose who you are, right? The, I think it was James Clear wrote about habits. Who, uh, who once said um, that every choice I make is a vote for my identity or for the person I want to be. You know, and there's, there's a lot of truth in that when I decide to be a more truthful person, then I can choose every single moment to be as truthful as I can. There'll be certain dilemmas there because, you know, um, but I-, I can do that. And then over time, I might find myself becoming a truthful person as somebody who speaks the truth or to speaks their truth. But if I choose to be more extroverted and I'm an introvert, I've people who have attempted to choose themselves into being an extrovert and they ended up constantly exhausted uh, because maybe you're just not, you know, maybe the way that you're wired, maybe some part of our wiring cannot be untangled or changed anymore. It just, our psychic apparatus has formed. And then at some point certain areas have formed, they will not go back. You know, Gabo Mate, who I really, really love, he talks beautifully about trauma and about his own trauma. Uh, he has the story where he came back from from uh, a trip, and his wife forgot to pick him up from the airport. Uh, so he took a taxi. It was flying first class, you know. It was really a very comfortable experience. But his trauma from getting abandoned as a young child of like I think three or four, his mother um, gave him away to save his life in war times. But because his mother abandoned him and he hadn't capacity to understand that, still now that he's in his, I think, 70s, it still gets triggered. He didn't look at his wife all day long. you know. And he said, this used to be a week and now it's only the rest of the day. you know. But he's still affected by that experience. Maybe it cannot fully be healed. So there's this idea that I keep running into um, that at the time was quite challenging for me as a coach because as coaches... Most coaches believe that we are in the business of change. We're helping people change and transform and become different people. Ideally, maybe not just do things, but maybe also not just what you want to do, but who do you want to be? And more and more, I hear this idea of maybe, maybe we don't actually change. Maybe we just find a way back to ourselves. Uh, And that's a powerful idea under all these layers of conditioning that we gather up throughout our lives. Maybe there's some core that we can lean into. Maybe we don't need to eliminate our weakness. Maybe we can lean into some of our weaknesses. Uh, I just wrote about that in one of my nuggets. I I, I observed my brain at work and it I was just doing all of these things at the same time. There was like 20 different tasks that I started, kept getting distracted. It was kind of a productive session because I've done like 20, 30 tasks, but you know, that's... It it was not what the productivity experts tell you. And for years, I've tried to create more focus and more discipline and just force myself to do it the right way, the normal way. And at some point I realized, well, that's just not how I work. And some of my work I do when my brain is firing out of all cylinders. People will have noticed that in this conversation, right? We touch on so many different things, but I learned how to bring things back together. You know, and I wouldn't have forgotten your question around how do I present myself and I, I'm able to hold a lot of information It helps me in my coaching, but it's so not the really... linear, <laughs> it's not the linear kind of work. And some clients will not like that about my coaching. And so this question around, do we really change or do we just find a way back to ourselves is a super interesting one that really challenged me uh, as a coach when I started to really think about that.
0: And if I can get back, so thank you for sharing that, and I can really relate because that's because it it took me half a year to realize that and uh, I'm not that linear person as well. i once I was tasked with doing uh, one of those productivity trainings because I used to work in a in an old day company, and you know it, in one of the sessions I was like, "Okay, Soly, you have to come jump in and do this kind of training." And I was like, okay, but i have I've never done that kind of training before, and I would but they were like, My bosses and my colleagues, they were like, okay, but you're a seasoned trainer, you can do that. Just one day you go there and you do your stuff. And I was like, okay, of course. I went in there, I learned the stuff, then I tried to apply it for myself. And (laughs) I realized that, okay, that's not (laughs) me. I I cannot get things done, not with the big GTD. I was like completely failing in that because of my wiring. And um, I'm not forgetting my question as well, because I... I was interested in, in jumping social limitations. That was one of the, and I don't want to get back to that exactly, but, but as you are talking about getting back to ourselves, then a real challenge that I'm seeing is that society or the world is really pushing an idea about what happiness is or what about, your life what? should be. Ah, yeah. So, what about happiness ideas. We are constantly fed by ideas of what happiness or what a great life should be. I mean, own a Ferrari, drink, you know, Coca-Cola, let's delete this, whatever. (laughs) You know, I just open up any website. If I'm not subscribed, if I'm not paying for it, then there will be, you know, tons of ads, whatever. And the big challenge is that if I get back to my core self or whatever, there's a chance that it may not be fitting the big social expectations that I'm facing. So what what should I do in those cases? I mean, should I just be happy in my own cave?
1: Yeah.
0: Why not? Looks like a nice nice choice for me. Or what is the level of uh, you know compromise I may be making? And I don't have a specific question for that. I just wanted to bring in the the yeah. social level to a conversation as yeah. you are bringing, as you are coming from the from the brain from the rewiring and from the okay. from the individual perspective, I just like to give the, the social side yeah I've seen
1: this remember. beautiful image of this uh, young girl sitting on a train and uh, it might have been photoshopped. I don't know where the statement originated, but she's looking at this poster next to her that's saying um something along the lines of, in a in a in a modern consumerist society uh, just being yourself is a rebellious act Uh, and i love that because we we have all these ideas implanted in us and some of these ideas come from advertising some of ideas come from science some of these ideas come from our primary caregivers some ideas come from our friends uh, from philosophy from an early influential teacher but we've grown up with all of these ideas about what's right and what's wrong and what's a good way of living and who am I, right? This this question of who am I is such a a prevalent one in existential practice. And because how do we make choices other than on the basis of who we are, our values, our beliefs, our worldview, you know, Mm -hmm. what's your concept of identity and self? And how does that help you make or guide you in making choices. And really when we think about it and we look at people and how they form, they're all an illusion, but it's also not an illusion, right? (laughs) When your parents tell you you're smart, you might think that you're smart and you might become smart because they've told you that, you know, if somebody's uh, giving you a certain idea of what happiness means or every bus that drives past gives you a certain image, even if it's sub perceptual even if you don't have time to actually look at it your brain will pick up imagery very quickly and there's all these powerful images now in in advertising and our generation grew up with tv and there's tons of it you know then there was a time a beautiful time where youtube didn't have any advertisings now there's lots of it and even if it's just a few seconds you know advertisers got clever it does affect you and these messages they are there and they're an illusion because they've been fabricated But because they're there, they are real, and we take them on. So then really some clients come into the the space where they think, oh, my God, everything I am is an illusion. And that's very scary. But at the same time, there's so much potential in there because then, well, now you got got with that awareness. It's scary. It's an uncomfortable place. it, It doesn't feel grounded. You know, but now there's potential, because with that awareness, you are now in a position where you can start challenging certain voices. Maybe this isn't a value of mine, mine. Maybe it's a value that I've always just never questioned. It's a value that I've been given. like my mom is a strong believer in fairness. you know i've I've taken that on for a very long time, never really questioned it, and at some point, I started wondering. Where's this sense coming from? Why do I get angry when I see injustice? You know, why do I step in and do things when I step into something that I think isn't fair? You know, why do I have a overwhelming urge to, uh, you know, sue this or that company and then never do it? (laughs) But, you know, it's like, that really gets to me. And like, ah, that's because that's been instilled in me. And I know I could probably let some of that go. And I probably have let some of that go. Um, but I think this process of questioning who you are, what messages you've been given, some of them, they will probably never leave. Some of them you consciously choose to lean into and others you can drop because you realize that's a story I've been given. And how many clients in coaching have I met where intellectually they know what they're feeling doesn't make any sense anymore with what they know now, but emotionally it's still there. Emotionally, there's still in a response. And that's a difficult space to be in.
0: Absolutely agree. And you know, as you are as you are speaking, then I can just bring in the whole nature versus nurture idea here.
1: It's been in the room this whole time, right? Yes.
0: <laughs> because you know, if I'm taking a bit of a radical approach, then everything I believe about myself is somehow instilled in me. It of. Mm-hmm. As I said, this sentence, I can of course immediately think of things that I, that I have told about, that I have told myself about myself. But I think the ratio of messages that we are being given versus the ones that we are giving to ourselves is is far from being equal. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love all the helping professions, coaching therapy, whatever identity works, because it helps, the process itself helps us to make a decision whether I would like to keep certain things regardless of their origins as mine or whether I would like just to throw them away. And, uh, yeah. I think then the whole... Oh, go yeah, so, no, 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 I just wanted to say that the whole, the moment where how we got connected was around the... Uh, the question of identity, I think that's that's how we started our conversation before this recording.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was uh, I heard your conversation with Reinhard Stelter.
0: Yes, And yes. Uh,
1: That that I wanted to reference him earlier because we mentioned the kind of traditional coaching or you know the kind of performance coaching. Uh, Reinhard would call it first generation coaching, uh-huh. and his third generation coaching format is just to be to be with each other. Uh, lingering, mm. verweilen in German. It's German colleague who right, uh, lives in Denmark, but like verweilen, uh, lingering, just being there with someone, holding that space, being together. These, If the questions are there, they will come up. I mean, you can start asking those questions. And I, I think there's merit in with some clients to really offer something from the coach's expertise of like, what kind of questions are you interested in? I, I like to see what questions emerge and maybe pick up on the questions that are underneath the surface that seem to be connected to what they bring into the coaching space. Because in coaching spaces, people bring in, well, even how do I get a promotion or I want to be a better leader? You know, there's so much there. I mean, there, there's likely to be something around what's your relationship with authenticity. What's your relationship with responsibility. What's your relationship with freedom. What's your relationship with uncertainty and not knowing What's your relationship with, you know, absurdity and meaning and purpose, you know, all of these big philosophical themes, they're there, but it comes into the coaching room with quite a tangible, practical question. And I think learning to spot what sits underneath and maybe offering, offering a sense that there's a bigger question here. Here's a theme that I'm picking up. It's not me bringing it in. It's not me making somebody go all philosophical. But it's just me making a link based on something that I'm seeing, you, know, or what I'm picking up. And correct me if I'm wrong, right? but I' I'm, get I'm curious about this. So I, I say to a client, um, And then they have an invitation to, to have a conversation at a different level where all these practical, tangible things, which we will return to, will probably resolve itself in some way. That's the client is usually well capable of making these kind of links. And it's not necessarily better to work bottom-up than to work top-down. You, know, you, you can start with setting very clear goals around what kind of leader you want to be. But you can also start with, what does it mean to you to be a leader? You know, and how does that re- How is this relationship formed? And I heard a beautiful question um, from another a podcast I was on. Um, Gary Crotus uh, asks, where in your story do we need to begin to understand the person that you are today? Oh, I love that. That's a great question. Huh? Uh, just to open, not just for a podcast, but also for a coaching engagement. Um, when you meet a person, you ask that kind of question. How amazing. Uh, Dr. Simon Western I mentioned earlier, um, just, he's very present because we just talked on a podcast yesterday. He asks very often, so what is your desire? And you don't really hear that question a lot. Especially not in a coaching context, right? And then people kinda of disrupts the normal conversation that they might think they're gonna have with a coach and they really need to think about well, what does desire actually mean to me and what the hell do you mean? And he usually just doesn't respond, you know. And then they they often go somewhere where it's very, very useful conversation to have, but it's a different conversation and it's a different entry into doing work.
0: Mm-hmm. And since "I'm listening to you. I have a an evil inner voice talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> because, so let's invite you them really, for tea. <laughs> you know, so you, because you are really exploring so very deep ideas, moments where we can invite our clients, clients to flourish and really to go in to connect with their deeper selves. And and my evil question is that are all our clients capable of doing that? And of course we previously talked about limiting beliefs, whatever. But you know my bit more fundamental question is around coachability, or Mm -hmm. uh, you know cognitive complexity. Let me Mm -hmm. focus on one certain aspect of of this. Not really well-researched question of coachability because some people thought they stand others thought that. So, what's your points on that? Do do the existential work, or whatever tools we are using for deeper connections. Do this work with everyone. Don't you need a certain yeah. level of of entry point, emotional maturity, cognitive complexity, you name it, to be able to work on yeah. those levels? And what do you do when they are not there?
1: So I've not met anyone where i thought well i haven't had anyone in the coaching room let's say that didn't with a willingness to go there wasn't able to i am biased in some way because people who seek me out or people who somebody suggests they might want to work with me it's a it's already a biased sample right so um it's much more likely that i meet someone who wants to go on that kind of journey uh, and also uh, coaching is uh, is an is an investment right so i've done some work in some charities in east london when i was still living in london um they more kind of workshop style materials they weren't going deep in the kind of philosophy um but it was with a with a with people that you would maybe picture if you think about someone who might not have that capacity for complexity I think then it's the job of the coach to offer these questions up in a way that they have access to it. Drop all the terminology, drop the complexity, ask simpler questions. I mean, there's philosophy books for kids. Uh, one is called, I think it was the Why Machine or something like that. There's you can ask young children quite complex questions. You know, you just need to package it in a way that they have access to the question. You know, mm-hmm. and even if they don't grasp all the complexity of paradox and dilemma it takes some time to wrap your head around paradox it's a difficult context concept to grasp um but when it shows up and you find the right metaphor for example there might be an element of psychoeducation or of you know putting something on the table you know well oh one part of me wants that and the other part wants that and now they're fighting then so now i have this inner conflict you know i want to belong I want to fit in, but at the same time, I want to be me. I want to be an individual. I want to be special. And I want both things at the same time. And they don't go together. You know. I want to I want to be free to choose whatever I want, but I also don't want to be anxious about my choices. So I kind of want to, it's, it's comfortable following someone on, on holiday. I'd love to just do what people are doing and just kind of go with the flow. You know, I don't want to make a lot of decisions while I'm on holiday, (laughs) make so many decisions on holiday. I don't really want to make any, you know, so, but, you know, we have that conflict. And so if you find the right example, or you see the example in what your client is bringing, ah, so it seems that, you know, you want this and you also want that. And they don't seem to quite go together. And if you reflect something like that back, there's no complexity in it. I mean, there's a lot of complexity in it. But being faced with the experience of wanting something and at the same time not wanting it. That's that's the experience. That's the paradox. So it's there. I, I don't think you need to be super switched on to grasp that experience.
0: Thank you. And and I I really appreciate that you you found sorry for saying that, that I found a good answer for that, because that's what I was expecting. I was just curious on how on, on how you on how you get where, because I think I think we should really have the belief oh how oh, oh judgmental I am now but let yeah. let me be judgmental I think we as helping professionals we must have the belief that our clients are capable of of getting somewhere
1: yeah yeah and, and I can
0: now reflect back to the whole idea of mm-hmm. of boundaries between coaching and therapy and whatever because mm-hmm. that this could be a defining line again. That in therapy, certain people, or I could imagine having a definition which would imply that someone is in a therapeutic need where they may not have the capacity or the ability to, to do certain stuff, for example, to think, yeah. or to think clearly, or to make decisions in a, you know, that's quite yeah. rational manner. Yeah. Because yeah. they may be engaging with a level of reality which is not really there at all. mm mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And there, there are certain, yeah. What, what is it? Like I'm, I'm thinking about, I mean, willingness plays a big part, right? Does somebody actually really want to, and you asked that question earlier, you know, what happens if somebody just says, I don't know, and they don't want to think any further than that. Well, I think sometimes, I mean, sometimes bring the example of the car mechanic who loves to work on the 1967 Corvette in the back. But sometimes somebody with an old Ford Vauxhall <laughs> comes and needs the exhaust pipe fixed. And it's just just doing a job. You know, it's not deeply passionate work. It's just sometimes you just use your skills to help somebody get what they want. And it might not be what you what you want for them, but it's what they want. And so sometimes it's just a job. And that's okay. Um it can sometimes be a bit frustrating when you feel there's so much more that this person could be doing if they were willing to get a couple of levels deeper, but I can only invite them. I can only reflect back that there's other doors open. And if they say they want to, and then they just don't, I can reflect that back again. You know, you say that you want to go there, but you seem to not whatever gentle or not so gentle words you need to say that. Um, But if they don't want to, if they'd rather do, the career progression thing without actually asking questions around who they are as a person, I think they're limiting themselves. I think some people need to think about who they are as a person in order to progress in their career. But plenty of people really don't. They just need to work on some time management and create some new habits. And then I may refer them to another coach who really loves to do that work. Or I just do the work. And you know, increasingly now with you know more reputation and being a bit more privileged in terms of how I can who I can choose to work with, mm-hmm. I more and more choose to work that really excites me because I know that's where I do my best work. But there's definitely been a time where I just said yes because I needed the money and I could do the job. You know, yeah. that's that's so that's okay. I think that's absolutely okay.
0: And uh, you know, on on one hand, I I just like to highlight this thing that sometimes it's just absolutely okay to do the job and get paid. I think that's that's part of us being professionals when sometimes it is really just putting aside all our stuff and and you know get the things done Mm. and the other thing that i can just really refer back to the previous part for conversation that that sometimes our own even our own positive beliefs about the clients can become more agendas and sometimes it may be a challenging thing to find the proper balance between and an encouraging challenge or a bit of an extra push that you may give to your client and and yeah. between you know being on your own train of thought and, and pushing your client to something mm-hmm. and uh, that we might speak i think that we must be careful about fun, finding our own boundaries in yeah. our yeah. own passion in our, in our own enthusiasm about okay. our clients or about the work we are doing yeah. because sometimes overexcitement so even, even excitement can be bad at a
1: certain level <laughs> yeah for sure and that's this call for supervision again right this uh, therapists have done a lot more work usually right mm-hmm. on themselves they they need to be in their own therapy supervision is mandatory there's a lot more years of forming involved There's plenty of bad therapists out there. Don't get me wrong. There's some atrocious stuff that I hear about. Oh my God. But, you know, um, coaches may have done that work too. And many coaches do. But that's why I think supervision is such an important point. If you want to get to that next level of maturity or mastery or progression, development skills, Um, because you need to know how yourself is coming into the room. If you are too excited about, the client's potential, you might either be really influencing the work in a way that you don't really want to take responsibility for. Uh, It could be potentially harmful when that person feels there should be more than they actually are. And they were quite happy with what they wanted to do. And then all of a sudden they have this, you create the sense of lack. And I know some coaches do that consciously and some do that purposefully you know to create a sense of lack in the client that they're meeting for a consultation so that it's more likely that that person signs up for the coaching and some do that with absolute best intentions you know i want that person to be their best self i want them to raise their bar i want them to be the best they could possibly could so that they can die without regrets and you know but that person might have not signed up for no. for that and also you might create some unrealistic fantasies around what's possible depending on your physical, philosophical stance of what's possible. We discussed that, right? Is anything possible? Um, I I remember I've been very, in my psychology um, undergraduate, we were studying the the Swedish twin studies. There's like, I don't know, like 20,000, 50,000, like, a ton of uh, of monozygotic twins, like uh, Ein Eich. like the you know they're exactly the same genetic makeup. Yeah, um, you're probably familiar with these, but the audience might not be. Um, and they're they're separated at birth, and they grow up in different cultures or environments. Even if it's just down the street, uh, it's a different culture, you know, different values, different ideas, different parents. Parents of completely different genetic makeup, and then they found all of these similarities. Sometimes of how they like their tea, you know. So there's these super interesting um, parallels of of twins that have grown up completely separate, which often is used as an argument for well, a lot of things are determined they are in your makeup. And so um, I I came out of university with the belief that roughly fifty percent across the board, it has nothing to do with how we grow up and what we are being given. You know, that's that's part of our genetic makeup. I think we can still form. I think we can still transcend some of our genetic makeup. I mean, we've transcended, uh, many people have transcended eating meat, for example, or eating any animal products. And that's not natural, you know, um, evolutionarily. So we've been conditioned that way. And then people unconditioned themselves. So we can break through of some of these. But then also, depending on your stance on addiction, for example, well, is that an illness and you cannot really do anything about that? Or is that a choice and you just need to want it harder? Uh, And often it's very complex, but I think it's important that coaches ask themselves these questions of what they believe about the nature of change and what's possible, because inevitably they will bring their own ideas into the room, whether they bring the ideas in or whether it comes through by how they ask questions or how they listen or what their body does when they're with with a client.
0: I just just usually get stuck with the question of is anything possible or what is possible? So I'm like, hmm, I could just keep, I could just play around that. But, you know, I've been showing you a number of questions and, and we've been talking for a long time now and, you know, let me let me reverse this a bit mm-hmm. and let me just ask you that, uh, what is the question that emerges for you from all of this conversation? Because I, I'm pretty sure that you, you may have something going on extra in your mind. And so <laughs> <laughs> for those who are just listening to us, there was an interesting facial expression. <laughs> yeah yeah it was just of kind
1: of so good the um, the so... the expression oh. was uh, i'm I've been in relation here, right uh, just kind of vibing with your curiosity, and I'm aware that I haven't asked you a lot of questions, but it feels like a really good exchange nonetheless um but as you asked me that question, for a moment, I went kind of inside. And that's where that facial expression came from. Like, oh, let me take myself out of this for a moment and just really listen inside instead of just, you know, um, uh, dialogue. Back and forth. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. And it's absolutely okay if you, if we would take a next time you asking me the questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I thought might happen, right? That uh, maybe I'll just uh, we'll just bounce off each other. And uh, if I were to start asking you a bunch of questions, I think we have a whole nother conversation. Um, we could switch it now, right? Because I'm curious about a lot of things around not just about how you think about things, which you know you share generously, but also how you introduce yourself and uh, how you navigate some of these challenges and how these questions come into your coaching room. Because you you probably have a, a lot more expertise. You train therapists, right? I'm not a trained therapist, even though a lot of my no, training. I'm
0: not a therapist. I'm just a psychologist with a. Soon to be finished specialization in counseling psychology and of course a, a number of tools and things that I've heard but not heard, gotcha. about. Right.
1: so So that means I'm you duck deeper. The, but that means you dug deeper in the therapeutic space than than probably I have, and from an from also from an, uh, probably a different perspective. So maybe, um maybe let me uh, no, let, let me te- st- yeah, go ahead.
0: So I, I would say that let's save that to our next session. Uh-huh. Uh and I would be happy to share all of those and uh, I would need to get a bit more extra preparation <laughs> as that's one of my things.
1: Really, talk yeah. about you, you don't need any preparation. I would need to prepare a bit more because I would want to have at least a couple of uh, curiosities based on uh, on what I know about you or what I've learned about you.
0: Well, uh, you know, when I, so when I ask the question or when, when we... we Moving around the topic of, of creating cells or, or reflecting stuff, I I really think that I'm so I'm very I'm a very spontaneous person, mm-hmm. and I I just know that I can I can say out things that I've never previously thought about, and uh, sometimes I do regret what I say. I have I have to be honest because sometimes <laughs> yeah. I just like very spontaneously say things like, "Okay, that shouldn't I I shouldn't have said it." Not especially in a that thing, you're on a conference or whatever. Of course, with age and 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 I'm I'm not so much older than you are. I'm just 42, so I have the answer for everything by Douglas Adams. So I uh, so I have I have quite a good self-reflection mm-hmm. on on stopping me from from saying those things. But uh, I know I just have an impression of oh, so many good things that we should be exploring. So I I need to find some some pre-generated answers. And you say this is one thing that I already did that's saying. So I won't prepare anything, but I think that we should just uh, go and find a nice closing for a conversation right now. Yeah, and that's I my hunch I, I, I would be really happy to have another one where you would be asking a bit more of the questions, but we wouldn't be dropping the, the general framework of having a conversation and not just being interior were and interior we or whoever we call ourselves in these settings yeah so my question is what is the thing that that uh, that you are thinking of right now what would be your you know your closing thing that's either something which is an essence of of the conversation or the thing that is mm. really missing from it from your perspective oh i love the missing question so yeah let
1: me let me listen in I think there's something around the the nature of change and how many different perspectives there are on this topic. And I guess what's really present for me is this, this encouragement to anybody who's listening to this to either think about that and not just think about that, have conversations about it, maybe read a little bit around the topic, you know, the nature nurture debate, there's plenty of it in psychology. There's some good summaries. There's some good books around it. I remember reading Steven Pinker back in my uni days, and there was one book that's called how they fuck you up. <laughs> I forgot the, I forgot the author, but he was uh, arguing for, for nurture. Um, to what extent is it possible? And that question around, well, can you do that with anybody? Um one thing that was present earlier for me is, for example, somebody who's in the clinical end of depression. Um, still a vague terminology, but like there's people who just cannot possibly form a positive thought about the future right now. It's just not available to them ontologically or neuropsychologically or however you want to look at it. It's just there's going to be a big black wall. And whatever coaching questions you ask about the future and them imagining themselves and tapping to all this good coaching stuff, it's just not going to work. It's just not available to them right now. So I do think there's limits, right? And I think there'll be people out there disagreeing with me. They say, no, you haven't just, you just haven't found a way to engage them. And maybe sometimes that's true. And they really break through a black wall of depression and somebody's all of a sudden lighting up and they find something that they can, you know, that gets them out of a depression. I, you know, I really want to encourage coaches out there to think about that and study it a bit because it influences so much of what we do and how we do it. And I think if we can make that more conscious, if we can create more awareness around how we're showing up on the basis of our beliefs and values and what we know, or what we think we know, I think we're going to show up better for our clients. And our clients deserve that. As an existentialist, I don't believe that there's an authority to say what coaching is and isn't. You know, I regulation keeps people safe. And I think in the therapy world, it's important because it's very vulnerable people that I think deserve protection from either charlatans or people with best intentions and very limited knowledge about how their enthusiasm might harm someone. You know, but in the coaching space, I think, there's less protection needed because people tend to be more resourceful and able to make their own decisions and take responsibility for their decisions. You know, if you work with a kind of coach that has very dubious marketing, chances are, you know what you're getting yourself into on some level, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if not, well, maybe that's good learning and you waste a couple of thousand pounds and then you learn from that too. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, but I think as practitioners, we have an ethical obligation to question and explore how we're bringing ourselves into the coaching room and how that affects our clients consciously or unconsciously. It doesn't mean that everybody needs to become a therapist, but you don't need to become a therapist in order to gain more awareness around how you're affecting other people just in by the way that you're being there, how you're showing up. That's what I would leave people with. Thank
0: you very much. And
1: I just stopped myself from
0: reflecting on what you just said. Let, let us take a uh... A next session on continuing either with that or either with anything else. And thank you very much for being with me today. And thank you very much for being the longest conversation ever I had on this show. And uh, it was truly inspirational for me. Thank you very much, Jenny, for being here with me.
1: I fully enjoyed this, uh, Zoltan. It's uh, it was a very very good conversation that allowed me to make some links that maybe I hadn't made before and s- formulate some things in a clarity that hopefully gets through to some people. also, of course, thank you for the platform because you have a fantastic podcast. You talk to some amazing guests and I, I'm sure that the people who listen to your podcast regularly are probably the kind of people that would really appreciate this kind of conversation. So uh, if you're listening to this, I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, um, I often say, if any of it resonates, make it swing. right? I'd love to hear from people or go talk to some other people about what you've heard here. I don't really need to know. But as long as I know that we started some conversations around these important topics, uh, I will. I find this very meaningful. So um, thank you for, for offering that, Sultan. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to On Coaching Podcast, where I have curious conversations with world-renowned coaches and researchers. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate us and subscribe. I also invite you to visit zotenchigash.com, where you can access more resources regarding the coaching industry. Be well.